Hello and welcome to the Solve Know Your Customer podcast, where we interview some of the best entrepreneurs and leaders in the direct-to-consumer space. I'm Guy Horrocks, co-founder of Solve, the data engine for e-commerce. Today, we have a real treat for you with a good friend of mine on the podcast. This person has a rare ability to make business seem far too logical and to make complex strategies seem far too simple. And then for me being a Kiwi, I have to live with the fact that this person I look up to has the exotic accent of an Australian. It's a very bitter pill to swallow. I first met our guest Adam Ross of Heyday back in 2008 when I first moved to New York. I was living with his friends Harry and Nico and they organized an infamous boys brunch at Lua Fish Bar each month. Adam had an investment banking background but had successfully transitioned to become a great direct-to-consumer entrepreneur. He's been involved with companies such as Homeware Juggernaut, Serena and Lily, one of the leading online footwear startups, Saludos, and now the beauty and skincare startup, Heyday. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Adam. We're thrilled to have you on. Perhaps you can start by providing a little bit of background on your journey to New York and the transition from banking to startups. Yeah, in terms of a bit about me, uh, clearly the accent, you can tell born and raised in, in Australia. Um, and straight out of undergrad, I went into mergers and acquisitions. Um, I did that with, with UBS at the time. Um, after 12 months, they actually offered me the chance to transfer to, to New York. Um, so I'm not sure what, what 23 year old uh, person investment banking after 12 months would say no to, to a New York opportunity. So the intent at the time was to transfer across for, you know, three or four years, get some good experience and then you know, obviously come back to the to the Sydney office and, um, you know, keep keep trucking forward. I transferred 20 years ago, so clearly that did not transpire. Um, but uh, ended up when I transferred to New York, focusing solely within the consumer and retail sectors. Um, and in investment banking, um, ended up doing that for almost a decade in New York. And I was with UBS for half the time. And then I actually was a founding member of a boutique advisory firm called Cineview Partners. Um, continue to specialize in in that sort of consumer and retail sector. And, and over time you you increasingly specialize and I went into three different three different verticals, uh, confectionery, uh, you know, sort of food and beverage, retail and beauty. Um, which I think was part of the the, the genesis for, you know, the light bulb moment for what he's now. Does that mean does that mean that there's a, you know, because obviously you've got retail companies that you've sort of started, you've got, you know, beauty. Does that mean I, I'm looking forward as a sweet tooth to this amazing confectionery company that you've got lined up at some point? I'm not sure I'm cut out for that. Tough category. Okay. Yeah, the Willy Wonka uh, category is uh, too, too competitive. I get it. Um, that's awesome. And so that kind of laid the foundation, I suppose, learning those different markets from kind of the banking side you know, as you transitioned into D to C of actually, you know, starting and running these businesses, you also seem to like do a lot of angel investing. Um, like may, maybe sort of chat through, like, were you starting to do some of those investments prior to sort of really diving into the, into the pool on this? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I think for me, I mean, investment banking was an absolutely tremendous stepping stone. I think for wanting to become an entrepreneur and the broader capabilities and understanding it gives you around a business across, you know, strategic operational and financial levers. So I think it certainly set me up for success, A, as an investor and, and B, certainly as, you know, being on the other side of the table as an entrepreneur. 
I think, I think for me, I mean, to answer the question, Guy, as I was getting more seasoned in banking, I was actually getting more and more interested in the smaller deals that were actually, you know, you were selling businesses or buying businesses that were entrepreneurial, you know, born and led versus, you know, sort of like I was involved in selling, advising on the sale of Gillette to P&G and like, you know, front page of the Wall Street Journal deal. But again, you're just dealing with a very, very different beast. And I just love the story of the entrepreneur that had built the, you know, one, two, $500 billion company and started it from scratch. And that was the person that I was sitting across the table speaking to. So I found that, I found that increasingly where my passion lied. And I think as a banker, um, you can sort of sit across one side of the table and give advice and give the theory, um, or you can sit on the other side and roll up the sleeves. And I think I've always been interested in, in investing, but I also wanted to roll up the sleeves and get the hands dirty on, on being part of like building brands and businesses that engage into like customers, um, and being so the, part the of that. Har the Harry's and Dollar Shave Club are a lot more exciting than Juliet is the sort of takeaway from that. Is that sort of, you're confirming different things it. Different people, but for me, yeah, yeah. got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I think I, I'd done a bit of, a bit of angel investing. Um, I pretty much stuck in my lane again, knowing consumer and retail, it's what I do. So I don't branch out at anything, you know, real estate, financial institutions. I know, I know where I, where I can add value. So, um, did a few things, um, didn't want to sort of spatter too many, too many investments across too many businesses. And I, I still do a little bit today, but I, I think the general preference is I want to do fewer things better and make, make more concentrated bets and, um, you know, there's obviously more outsized opportunities that can come with that versus, you know, 10 different fingers in, in 10 different pies. Yeah. I think I, I remember you telling me that when, um, I'm obviously don't consider myself an angel investor. I'm just an entrepreneur, but I do angel invest in kind of friends companies and a lot of D to C stuff. And I think I remember you saying to me, it was like, you know, it's uh, in your opinion, better to go deeper with, with, you know, fewer companies and really kind of get involved. Um, and sort of have a, a bigger impact on them than, you know, basically passively invest in, in dozens of companies you, you hardly talk to and have no impact on. So, yeah, it was interesting. I think I've definitely taken more of that approach with some of the companies I've helped with, which has been fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And then um, I suppose with beauty specifically, you know, the journey to beauty didn't come overnight. Like you actually got involved in other businesses and retail. And then we, was this sort of a lingering thing in the background where you're like, I've got this idea or like, was it just an industry you're passionate about and you're sort of looking for the, the kind of like area in the market to kind of add value? I'd just be interested because you didn't go straight into beauty from the sort of banking investing, investing transition. You started with, you know, companies like Saludos, um, Footwear, which is uh, an awesome company. Um, you know, there's there's other companies you've been involved with like Serena and Lily and, and the sort of furniture space. But yeah, yeah. Give, us, give us the journey to beauty and, and maybe why it happened when it happened. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, I think my last few years of banking, I was increasingly spending more and more time in the beauty space. And, and at the time that was, that was doing banking Just personally, work. as you, do you mean personally, Adam? Or, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering, cause you're like, I spending a lot of time in be with beauty. <laughs> yeah. For just work. a beautiful person. Yeah. For oh, work. Got it. Banking, Got of it. No, I was, you know, doing work for, you know, Revlon, Avon, you know, PNG, Gillette, L'Oreal, Lord, like all the, all the big guys. And I, I think the category certainly piqued my interest more so than other, other categories. And I, I think there are a few reasons around that, but I think that was where it, 
I felt some, I felt there were some pretty interesting opportunities to be had. And, you know, again, I think as an investor or as an entrepreneur starting a business, there's certain things you want to like look for. And like one is you want a massive category. It's got emotional attachment. Um, and when I peeled back the onion a little bit and did, did a bit more research, I think arguably behind food and beverage, it's the second greatest daily use case in, in people's lives. But it was one that was just, be it, be it all these big guys that were like pushing products and I think just seeing an increasing level of fatigue in the marketplace with customers that just felt that companies were pushing product on them versus like listening to them and, and personalizing a solution. It just seemed like there was a massive, massive disconnect between how the market was set up versus what the customer wanted on the product side. And then on the services side, um, never come across a larger, more fragmented, you know, sort of like mum and pop category when it comes to, when it comes to operating. So that, that came together for me pretty well that I think got the, you know, got the mind thinking about what an opportunity could look like. And then, you know, Saludos was an interesting one. Um, Nick, Nick Brown, who's the, you know, the CEO, he had, he had the idea and as, as what's happened when you're, when you're an investment banker is people come to you with all their business ideas and say, Hey, what do you think about this? So I, I, Nick, Nick approached me and I said, yes, I think more out of, Hey, it felt like the nice thing to do at the time versus anything. And I, I, I read through the plan and, you know, there were certainly a few things there I, I didn't like, but it, it had the bones as something that was actually really, really interesting. And, you know, for the, you know, for the listeners out there, I think, you know, at the time we had Tom's that was starting to make some really powerful inroads into growing, growing the casual footwear category. And I think Javiana's was just a fantastic example of a brand that, you know, branded a generic category and did it at a, at a price point that I think belied the design and the aspiration and the, the, the brand motive that went into purchasing the product. So um, Escadrills was one that just, again, checked a lot of those, those boxes. So it felt like a good one to, I think, get involved with. And after I read the plan, I said to Nick, I, you know, there's something pretty significant here. I'd like to make this a sort of a formal partnership and roll up the sleeves and work with you for a couple of years. Like, let's launch the brand, like let's get product market fit. And then let's, let's then find a management team, right. To take this to the next level. So, um, you know, that's what we did. And I think, I that's think awesome. in the latter stages of, of doing that before handing over the reins and, you know, we got some institutional capital behind the business and, and, Retail and, and footwear is quite specialized, so you need you need the right team with the right expertise sooner. I think some other businesses yeah. you can, as founders, get away with sort of running the show a lot longer. But footwear footwear gets pretty complicated pretty quickly, and when you want to start dealing with the department stores, there's just a level of sophistication that I think as a first timer you want you want qualified people in the in the trenches with you. Um, but you know, as this was happening, I was still thinking through you know, still thinking through what is, what is now heyday. Um, and what happened over the same time is you had like the Warby Parkers of the world launched, you know, you had Sweet Green, you had Dry Bar, and you, you're seeing more and more examples, Guy, of brands that were focusing on like doing one thing and doing it well. So, you know, Warby, there are a lot of analogs to what we did in skincare where it's like, let's, let's take designer frames and, um, you know, without detracting from quality, like, Set, set a lower price that's doing the right thing by the customer um, and let's do it with an engaging brand and like a cool retail experience. Um, you know, Dry Bar in the US did a fantastic job of freeing the, the blowout from the salon. So, 
kind of came together with Heyday is that, well, let's, let's actually free the facial from the spa. And where that, where that was the light bulb moment for me was, I think at the time, you know, beauty was like a moniker for like all things in sort of skincare, makeup and color. And I think when you, and when you hear the word spa, it has this beauty pampering, indulgent connotation. But I think when you, when you reposition the facial out of the spa and you put it in an environment that is more gender neutral, unintimidating, like design inspired, it's much more self-care and wellness than beauty. And there was just this massive opportunity and, and gap for, for the most part, people in their twenties and thirties that really wanted to engage with, with facials and professional skincare, but just again, like the market was targeting this 50 plus customer that was, you know, had the, had the time and had the money to, to, to go to a high end spa to get facials. So that was sort of where it all, you know, ultimately came, you know, came together. Yeah, I actually love that because I think when you talk to a lot of founders, it's always inspirational to kind of hear their background story, how they started. And there's always like a passion around an industry or something. But I think um, what I love about the way that you sort of look at these, I think probably from your banking background is you sort of always got like a, a very sort of well thought out kind of approach and kind of goal with it. And I think you see a lot of startups, they sell online and then they go, oh, okay, let's add retail to it, you know, because we want to sort of create a store experience. And I think from the starting point here, it's really interesting because you've got, you know, spas, which, you know, as an entrepreneur in tech and software and data, you sort of don't, you don't sort of gravitate towards thinking I'm going to start like a hundred, you know, facial spas. It sort of sounds like a lot of work. There's a lot of physical things. There's a lot of people involved. It's hard to scale. You sort of see that. But then on the flip side, you start looking at what you're doing and, you know, the more and more I've sort of looked at your business, the more you sort of think, wow, this is actually something extremely valuable you've got better quality data than any sort of yeah. you know i suppose beauty company out there you know even the sort of darlings of the industry like the glossiers you know you've got you've actually know what people are putting on their skin you know what they, how their skin's responding if they like it do they come back what do they buy you know like you've sort of got this amazing um full 360 degree view of a customer which you know i can't think of another beauty brand that has that, like I literally can't, you look at Estee Lauder, a lot of their sales, you know, or, or, or L'Oreal, their sales are through Sephora, Glossier, even when you go D to C, it's sort of online or, you know, like it's, um, you are sitting on something that seems from the outset, extremely valuable. Um, so as designed, I imagine, rather than just sort of luck, but yeah, it is, no, but it seems it, pretty. It, it's, it's, no, but it's, it's such a great point because we, you know, as we were identifying the opportunity guy and, and for, for Heyday, you know, our North Star is ultimately be the be the skincare brand that like wins the hearts and minds of customers in the category. And interestingly, we've just skincare is one where there's no trusted skincare brands that like sits across curating other services. And I think that was actually that was pretty interesting. And even like the Sephora's and the Alters, you know, in the US, like they're predominantly makeup and color businesses versus versus skincare. But we we had the discussion because I think as founders and and operators, we talk about different channels behind the scenes in a way that a customer just doesn't really care about it. They want brands today that they can engage with like anywhere, anytime, anyplace, like online, offline. So as we were launching Heyday, we, you know, we said to ourselves, we get it, we've got to do the hardest part of the business model first, and that's retail. And you need to do physical retail because that to our mind was where you could get the understand like your true capabilities and the competitive moat that could then go into if we can crack this, like we can crack some sort of like differentiated 
online experience, but like, let's get the, let's hire the estheticians. Let's, let's do the facials. Let's learn and understand the business. And to your point, the opportunity, and we've done this since day one for like incredible data capture for us to figure out how and what we're going to do going forward. Um, I mean, we're essentially a real world R and D lab because you've got this, you've got this detailed intake form that, that our clients fill out when they walk through our door for the first time. And it goes beyond, you know, all like the topical, you know, what products you're taking right now and um, prescriptions, you know, we understand their prior facial history, caffeine, exercise, current, you know, current skincare routine, goals, objectives. But then when they get into our treatment chair, our esthetician does a pretty detailed skin type and skin analysis. And all of this stuff is digitized as is like every product used every step of the facial, um, you know, plus what we recommend irrespective of what the customer buys at point of sale. So we've got this, this really interesting hybrid, like client generated and expert generated data that goes into a personal profile that doesn't just provide a better hospitality experience when somebody comes back into the, the, the spa for the second time round. It, it's how we can be thoughtful around like content touch points education. And I think in a world today where I think we feel like our, our inbox is, is overwhelming with just a lot of noise. I mean, every touch point that Heyday should have with a client should be personalized to like your skin type and concern and where you are on your journey. So, you know, the, the data is just going to help us be, be far more thoughtful and again, like just deliver, deliver what it is our clients need. And again, I think in a world today where we all feel stretched a mile wide and an inch deep, like we can be your trusted skincare brand. And I think that's, that's what people want, right? You want, yeah. you want a brand that you can trust and you want expertise and you want to engage with a brand and get the guidance that you, you just can't do at home. And I suppose like when I think of someone like Glossier, like I feel like they really did an amazing job of building community from the outset, you know, and obviously coming from a blog with into the gloss and then moving it into product. You know, I think, you know, from the outset looking in, you don't really know kind of how good their product development is. And you sort of hear murmurs of like whether the products are actually that good in some bits, but they've got like, they've done an amazing job kind of building that personal relationship and building community. And I think when you sort of look at Heyday, I sort of feel like you've got that same possibility, but now you've actually got you know, skincare professionals at like the forefront of the brand. And you've actually got these interactions where you're doing these um, facials yep. with people. So it's just sort of, it's, it's like a, you know, the, the possibilities seem, seem sort of far superior to almost any, any other beauty brand in the business. Cause you've, you've got it full end to end, you know, what they're buying at home, you know, what they're doing, you know, how they come in, how they respond. Um, you're sort of, yeah, I suppose like it's, it sounds, it seems pretty exciting and to do a bit of a stretch of analogy on the solve side with, with data capture, we actually look at just collecting everything raw, which is quite a big difference because we get our clients to collect all the data directly instead of daisy chaining third-party systems. And the beauty by collecting 10 times more raw data is like, you can sort of go back in hindsight and look for opportunities. And I feel like it's yeah. the same thing here where by you having like all these tens of thousands of people every week or day, you know, like doing facials, you've suddenly got this amazing data capture where you can go in and say, well, hey, like, you know, this is an area where everyone's complaining about, you know, the oiliness of their skin. There's obviously an education problem or a, or a gap in the market. And you're sort of sitting on this treasure trove, which allows you to kind of mine it in any time you want along along the way, as long as you're capturing that data. So I, I love, yeah, I love the approach. It's really cool. Yeah, and, and where it's interesting, and again, it's like, a, it's a really, it's a great point. And, 
you know, couldn't agree more with what Emily did with like Glossier and the power of community. What's, what's fantastic about our category is just the incredible um, innovation guy in like R and D and new products. And I think where we have a, where we have a point of view at Heyday is it's very difficult for one brand, like whoever that brand is to own like world-class products from like cleanser all the way through to like an SPF moisturizer. So again, what we do is with the, with the partners we work with is we cherry pick the best products out there. And I think I, I'd be, I'd be reluctant launching a skincare brand today because like you can spend like hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars, like researching a product. I'm going to find three months later that there's something right that trumps you that makes your product somewhat somewhat redundant. So I like the ability for us to cherry pick and we've got to do our homework and research and curate the best of what's out there. But I think, again, that's where customers trust us because we can cherry pick the best of what's out there. And I think, again, what's changed, and I think it's taken some of like the Lauders and L'Oreal's of the world a bit more time to understand this, but people don't buy one brand across like all products everymore, right? They, they mix yeah. it up and they, they chop and change. So, you know, we've got our products that are set up to, to do that. And again, with the, the, the beauty of, you know, data capture and, you know, working, yeah. working, working with Solve is we can figure out where the gaps are and it informs where we need to get ahead and curate and round out the assortment or, you know, where are we under indexed, where are we over indexed and let's just not just meet our clients where they are today, but what they're looking for tomorrow. Yeah, I love that because I think I think there seems when we used to work a lot with the Estee Lauders, L'Oreal's like those big big players with our old company. Um, you know, I think a lot of them sort of were almost you know combative or confrontational with their competitors. You know, it was always sort of like you know a sort of fight against you know the idea that someone could have five L'Oreal products and then five Estee Lauder brands you know in their in their cabinet at the same time. You're like. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. But the way they sort of operate is like, you know, this is the one brand and you're a Clinique customer. You're not also a Mac customer. And if you're a Bobby Brown customer, you're definitely not a Mac customer. And then I sort of look at my wife's, you know, cabinet of stuff. I'm like, yeah, she's got Bobby Brown and Clinique and Mario Badescu. And, like, you know, it sort of doesn't really, it sort of lives in a, a sort of fantasy land where they kind of have one customer that buys that one product. Um, yeah, I do like that. That's, that's awesome because it's sort of a hybrid of, you know, sort of you've got the glossier side of direct-to-consumer, you've got the multi-brand side of Sephora, and then you've obviously got this amazing service side where you're actually working with customers directly, which is pretty cool. Um, so when you think about your customers, how do you find them? What are the characteristics? And maybe you could share a little bit about, because obviously the name of this podcast is Know Your Customer. Maybe break down how, how have you sort of felt going after customers and maybe what is the breakdown between men and women or what kind of characteristics are sort of unusual that you might not have expected when you think about starting a facial kind of company? I mean, we had a point of view initially on who we wanted our target customer to be. And I think when you're launching a brand and it's nice to want to be all things to all people, but you've got to, you've got to hone in on something because I think your brand voice and your position, everything needs to reflect who's your core who's your core customer? So for us, it was a, um, you know, at the time when we launched, it was a female age 25 to 35. We wanted someone that was, you know, was younger, was, 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 you know, more, you know, metropolitan, you know, she was aspirational, really cared about self-care. And I, I'm just giving you some of this because, you know, it's not all about sort of like the demographics. I think it's all about the, the psychographics, which is, which is how we think about it a little more. Um, but people that care about, where they're exercising, what they're eating, um, you know, sort of like love to travel, but someone that's also somewhat time constrained. But importantly, 
think about skincare as self-care versus versus beauty. And that's a difference because it's a, you know, it's more of a need versus a want. So that was like our primary, um, you know, our primary focus. I think the secondary focus for us was, was an older affluent woman at the time and it was someone that had actually probably went to spas and got facials more frequently and that probably use us as more of a freshener or top up in between their more expensive appointments. I'll come back to the behavior that we saw in a second. And then, and then men were the third demographic. And, you know, to answer your, your question specifically, the business today is around 80% women, 20% men. Um, but, you know, what we've actually found over time is, is actually sort of like a broadening of the demographic at actually both ends of the spectrum. So, um, you know, right now I'd, I'd say today, you know, a little over 80% of our clients, Guy, are in that 20 to 44 year olds bracket. And I think one thing that we've actually found is that the secondary customer was who we thought would sort of come and see us in between their more expensive appointments. I mean, some do that, but a lot have ultimately transitioned to Heyday, you know, as their primary skincare provider. So I think that's been really gratifying and I'd say more, more pleasantly surprised, but I'm, I'm not sure I had a point of view one way or the other, but, but we're actually finding that our Gen Z clients are actually the most sophisticated and up-to-date on their skincare knowledge. And I think the importance of facials being a gold standard within their skincare routine. And I thought, I thought we'd need to spend more time educating people on the benefits of skincare to get them to come into to heyday. And we've actually found that hasn't necessarily been the case. I think just the, the category has had too many friction points for engagement that it's been tough to, you know, really understand what true demand looks like. Yeah. And I suppose every time I used to see you on the streets in New York, I feel like you look very relaxed. Your skin looked amazing. I was like, you're sort of this glowing, I don't know where the tan comes from, but you know, I imagine you'd just come back from holiday somewhere and then I'm sort of stressed out, like buried under like some struggling startup thinking, oh man, <laughs> and, then, and then that's the aspirational heyday that I think of. I think, oh, I could be like, I could be like Adam not a care in the world, walking through the streets in New York, glowing, <laughs> fact or fiction? Is that, is that, is that just, is, uh, have, you been, have you been selling me the wrong vision? Is that what, cause that's what I'm thinking that I'm buying with, uh, when I go to Hedda. It, it was, it was probably just like more of a caffeinated diet that was just like from oh, like, okay. like to the face as opposed to any, any tan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, got it, okay. Well, I've got this UV tan that's so persistent, which is just of sitting inside looking at computer screens. So uh, ev everything looks, you know, glowing and tan beside me. Um, I suppose um, one, I've got like two more questions I'm sort of interested yeah. in sort of chatting about. Um, one is just uh, looking at the, the sort of expansion of, of uh, Heyday. So you've obviously got online, you've got your physical um, spas as well. Um, traditionally, you've been building out those as owned properties and, and that's yep. been very important. But now you're sort of looking to do sort of franchise and I'm assuming that's to sort of speed up the scale of, of that. Um, but maybe you could just chat through a little bit about I suppose what informed that decision to kind of move towards franchising the spa side and how how are you thinking about maintaining the same experience with the franchise but also like how data might flow into those as well because i think that's probably quite a unique thing as well yeah absolutely i think if you'd gotten me back in 2015 when we opened our first door and asked me about franchising i would have said no Right, but you're, at, you're at all the franchise conferences, aren't you? Aren't you? Isn't that your? I am now. I am now. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's, yeah. that's, that's a topic for a whole separate 
Okay, seven. got it. Um, no, but we, we made the strategic decision actually at the start of 2019 to adopt more of a dual track approach to, to door expansion. So it would have been both company operated and, and franchising. And, and part of that guy, we obviously worked really hard to, I think, have a fantastic like in-shop experience. Um, but it was actually one where I think as we've spoken to other brands and when we actually spoke to another, like a bunch of other franchise concepts across the US, the, the biggest concern when you scale is inconsistency of the experience, you know, and quality of the experience. And it's, it's still the one thing that keeps me up at night, um, you know, around scaling, but it's one where you ultimately want partners that have got skin in the game and are totally aligned to creating the experience that you've worked so hard to preserve. And ultimately felt that was better in the hands of franchise partners than it is in a, you know, in, in a shop manager. And certainly when you're, you're two and a half thousand miles away and right, the US is a big country, it gets more and more burdensome with, you know, HR labor laws, you know, operating structures to actually maintain the quality that you want in a company operated basis. And interestingly for us across all the franchised concepts in the US that are, that are very, very successful that have both company operated and franchise doors, their franchise doors outperform on every single metric from not just like revenue growth, but it's like quality of revenue, LTV, tenure of team, engagement of team, like wow. you name it and done yeah. the right way. Like the clients are totally indifferent and they've got no idea whether it's a franchise concept or, or owned and operated. So it's, it's one where we can kind of like check off all, all boxes so to your point, like we can plant flags in cities sooner and be like the national brand in, in services. So there is a speed, speed to market that matters. And I think establishing us as, as the brand in the, in the country, um, customer gets a better experience. Importantly, our team members, our estheticians get a better, get a better experience. So it just felt like a win across you know, across all metrics. Um, one thing that COVID did do is we have paused on owned and operated door expansion for now. I think we'll see what that means in the future, but I think over the next couple of years, you know, it's head down and a lot of resources are going into the necessary prep. You know, we've got around 20 franchise doors that are gonna be opening this year. So again, I sort of focus on fewer things done better. Um, so that's the, that's the 2022 focus. Um, that's so interesting because I suppose I never really thought about that structure leading to a better result. But um, when you do think about it, if someone's got vested interest in the outcome and they're sort of owning their, well, in their mind, owning their their their, their franchise, um, they're going to obviously want to be putting a lot of work and effort in to, to make it succeed. Yeah. And, and just one, one final point about that guy. And, and again, like it's different things for different companies. I think you can, like Warby Parker's going like the owned and operated route for for their retail doors and they're, they're incredibly successful around yeah. how they're doing that. But I think you've certainly for us, because we've got a, a very, you know, labor is the largest line item on our P and L. So in any one shop, we've got anywhere from like 35 to 45 team members. So we're very, wow. we're very, very labor heavy. And I think again, like you've got to, you know, for us at, at heyday, we needed to make a strategic question. Are we going to be, an operator of spas or are we going to let others operate at levels presumably better than we can and we're all around sort of like brand building you know experience building and you know using data to inform higher levels of um of experiences both at the both at the client and the team level and we clearly yep. chose the 
the latter, knowing that that was, that was our value add. And again, there's so many fantastic operators across the country and they, they know the cities, they know their areas better than we do. So it's, it's almost just, you know, sort of back to, back to economics 101 with Adam Smith and his laws of specialization. Like, or, Ad, or Adam Ross with Adam Ross. Yeah. Well, I love it. Actually, actually thank you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, the, the modern... Play to everyone's strengths. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I actually love it. It's 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 such a fascinating, um, I suppose, decision and strategy because there's so many different moving parts to it, and you sort of look at it and you're like, well, you know, if we do it this way, we might not be able to move as fast. The the results might vary, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it obviously hugely capital capital intensive if you're going to own, you know open a hundred stores and own uh, them all outright as well. So um, it's probably a long road to world domination that way. <laughs> um, I suppose just to round things off, this has been super fascinating. It's awesome as always to talk, talk with you about business. I always feel like uh, maybe it's the investment banking background. Maybe it's just cause uh, you know, I'm infinitely uh, more disorganized than you. I always sort of look to you as a sort of bastion of hope of like, okay, this person has, their shit together and seems to be set off right in the right way. So yeah, any parting words um, for the next budding entrepreneur? Sure. Um, no pressure. No, I think for, for all the, all the aspiring entrepreneurs out there, I think the great news is I don't think there's ever been a better time to start a business. I think it's, it's far less capital intensive than it's, than it's been historically. You know, obviously, as a result of that, there's a lot more people starting starting businesses because you don't need as much as, as much money to do that. Um, I would say every business needs to have a point of view, and you can literally do this on one page on why you should exist and what problem you're solving for. But then I, I think it just comes down to how do you understand if there's product market fit? And um, in a lot of cases, there is a um, there can be a gap in the market, but you've got to do the research to figure out if there's a market in the gap. And I think if there's, if there's a piece of advice I could impart, I think I've wasted so many, so many hours or days in my career with, with partners, with my team, like sitting around the boardroom table, arguing about what it is we think the customer wants, just test and learn and get it out there. And like, this is a day and age where you can get feedback and, you know, early adopters and people want to give feedback. So it's so easy to actually like, throw things out there and test and learn and find your way to understanding if there's a there there. And you can do that very cheaply. You can do that very quickly and you can do that very effectively. So, you know, that first step of, of taking it from, Hey guy, here's an idea. Like, let me talk to you about it. And, and like, you've got to make it real and like throw it out there into the world and you run the risk of you no know, shit. This may not get embraced. I mean, if it's not the right idea, like fail quickly and move on to the next one. So, I think, I think that's my advice. And I think with, you know, you know, with Saludos, with, with other businesses, I've adopted that framework. Um, there's actually a fantastic book. It's called The Lean Startup. It's actually, it's a little outdated. It's by, it's, I think it's um, Eric, Eric Reese, R-I-E-S. Um, but this whole, you know, test, measure, learn, like feedback loop has been really profound for me. So that will be the, that would be the one piece of advice I'd, I'd impart. Very good words. And um, yeah, thank you so much for joining. Uh, as always, always a pleasure. Um, I do feel like this might be correlation, not causation. But if I map the, the years since we've known each other, how much engagement in terms of interactions, catch up social events, I feel like there's a direct 
correlation to uh, the New Zealand uh, Australian rugby uh, results. And so I feel like when there was a, I just, I sort of had, couldn't help but notice that it's sort of, as there was a New Zealand All Blacks dominance in world rugby, um, uh, so the frequency and quality of, of our catch-ups uh, sort of dramatically declined. And then now as the All Blacks have sort of lost a bit of their stigma, um, we're catching up again, which is great. So it's the silver lining in, uh, in our national sport. Um, so uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to get through this podcast without you mentioning the All Blacks. I couldn't so help maybe, it. <laughs> maybe we could, but you've just... Well, All Blacks, I feel like the rugby and the cricket, um, you know, the, Australia was so dominant for so many years, especially cricket. So uh, it's good to... It's good to have a little bit of uh, balance there on the cricket side, and then the All Blacks uh, have lost a bit of their shine as well. So it's all it's all balancing out. I think you're still doing just fine. I don't We're think doing okay. Much to worry about right. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Hey, well, thank you again, and um, we'll obviously put a few of these links that um, Adam's mentioned about businesses he's built and been involved with, um, as well as that book um, in in the detailed notes of this podcast. But um, appreciate you joining. No, thanks for having me.